The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study that we actually just started. We've only done two verses so far, but we're looking at the church in Thessalonica. Paul thought a lot about this church. In verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The founding of this church, as we saw in Acts 17, caused riots, and Paul and his companions were run out of town. Now, when Paul learns that the church has not only survived but thrived, this Thanksgiving just comes spontaneously. I mean, you can imagine, he'd only been there a couple months, he gets run out of town and he thinks, what's going to happen now? Persecution drove me out, those poor young Christians, how are they going to stand up under persecution? And they are thriving at Thessalonica. Now, I asked you last week, why does Paul give thanks to God here? Rather than commending the Thessalonians, for their very wise decision to believe in Christ? It's an honest question, especially for you Arminians. Okay? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 4, and we'll look at that today. God, Paul thanks God because he knows that God is the one that chose the Thessalonian believers for salvation. And apart from God's choice, he knows they would not be believers at all. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's look at verse 3. Remembering before our God... And Father, your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. You know, this is a pretty glowing assessment. Remember, these believers were brand new Christians. They're under a year old. They're living in a very difficult culture without leadership, being harassed by people who are hostile towards what it is they're believing and teaching. And yet, they're just doing great. Now, this is the earliest mention, because this is one of the earliest epistles. I think only Galatians was written before this. But this is the earliest mention of these three Christian virtues, usually expressed as faith, hope, and love. Paul's order here is faith, love, and hope. And I think he does it that way because he is stressing the eschatological hope associated with Christ's second coming which is really the focus of this letter. Now, these three terms, faith, hope, and love, are often linked in the New Testament, but the order differs. Each of these three phrases is in a grammatical construction that asserts that the work is produced by faith, the labor is produced by love, and the steadfastness is produced by hope. The genitive of points to the source. So he says, your work of faith which would be better translated, their work produced by faith. Work here is the Greek word ergon, which refers to a work, a deed, an action, an accomplishment. And what's interesting here is work is singular. It's not your works of faith. It's your work. This seems to look at a specific work or deed. Now, I think the Thessalonians clearly will see we're acting out their faith in works of compassion and mercy. 
But here I think Paul is probably referring to their bold proclamation of the gospel in the midst of persecution. I think that's what he's centering in on. Your work of faith, which is preaching. Look what he says in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So they're boldly proclaiming the work of God. I think that's what he's centering in on here, your work of faith. Then he says your labor of love. Again, better translated, their labor prompted by love. Labor is the Greek koptos, which refers to laborious toil, trouble, difficulty. Their labor of love is a present labor, and it's explained, I think, in verse 9, where he says to serve the living and the true God. The objects of this love are the other members in this Christian community. And here's this little group striving together. He says, your steadfastness of hope. The Greek here is hupomone. Hupo means under, mone means to remain. And the idea is to remain under the pressure regardless of the intensity or the length of time. So it means endurance, patience, fortitude, endurance of resignation. But this is an endurance stimulated by hope. It's the endurance of hope. It's a present endurance prompted by a future prospect. A hope spelled out in verse 10, he says, to wait for his son from heaven. So they they have endurance. They're dealing with this persecution because they have a hope of the return of the Lord. Now, the first century Christian's hope was bound up in the coming of the Lord, an event that's mentioned very frequently in these letters. This was also the virtue of the martyrs according to Jewish thought, and it became one of the most valued virtues of the early church. The hope that they had, that they could, this hope gave them the ability to deal with the pressures there were. So here in 1 Thessalonians 3, the object of their hope is expressed by the words, in our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, if you have a, I think a King James, and there's some other translations, that close this verse with, in the presence of our God and Father. You see, that's not in this verse, and there seems to be some you know, discrepancies here on the text, but no matter whether it's in there or not, Christ is in the presence of God our Father, even if it's not in this verse. So, you know, the textual critics don't even seem to want to touch on this, so I'm not sure why some verses have it in and some don't, but whether it's there or not, Christ is there. All right. Now, notice what our Lord speaks to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, He's evaluating those people by the very same three virtues that we see here, in the very same order. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who works among the seven, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your present endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are say you cannot bear those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So, these are the virtues of mature believers. Alright, I want you to understand that. Now, there's a lot of Christians that don't demonstrate any of these virtues. I think the believers here, again, who are Christians less than a year, I think they're disciples of Christ. 
They're very mature in their faith. They're following the Lord. Commenting on 1 Thessalonians 1.3, John MacArthur says this, When you want to evaluate someone's claim to be a Christian, look at their life. That's bad advice. Okay? Because it depends on when you look at their life and how you're evaluating this. And if, if looking at the life tells you if they're a Christian or not, mm, I don't know about that. Okay, but that's, that's just bad advice. But he says, do you see deeds of righteousness? Do you see the maximum toiling effort of love for Christ? Well, that's a pretty strenuous claim there. Do you see the maximum toiling effort of love? Do you see that? In other words, if you don't, well, obviously they're not a Christian. Paul saw both in the report that he got from the Thessalonians. I agree. Paul did see this because these Christians were living like this because they were mature. They were disciples of Christ. He says they were straining their energy to live out their love for Christ at the maximum level. Jesus said, if you love one another, men are going to know your mind. Because the mark of a Christian is love. That's what identifies us. That's wrong. Okay? I think most Christians would hear that statement and say, yeah, they nod their head, yeah, amen, amen. That's not true, though. First of all, Yeshua never said that. Okay? The mark of a Christian is not love. The mark of a disciple is love. Let's look at what Yeshua really said in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one for another. Now, according to Yeshua, the mark of a disciple is love. And I think one of the most important and yet misunderstood distinctions in the Bible is the distinction between a Christian and a disciple. See, many see them as synonymous. But I think the Bible makes a distinction between them. For example, how does a person become a Christian? What do you have to do to be a Christian? Well, the answer is simple. You have to believe the Gospel. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and assent to the propositions of the Gospel. Then, they become a Christian. At that very moment... They are placed in the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They are indwelt by God. They are as sure of heaven as if they are already there. They are in Christ. Share all that He is and has. Whereas discipleship, I see as a call to forsake all and follow Christ. And this is a, discipleship is a call that only Christians receive. You can't ask a non-Christian to be a disciple, although some try. Okay, Some try to follow Christ without knowing Him. I see discipleship as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it has begun. All Christians are called to be disciples, but not all are. Discipleship is a call to obedience. So from what Paul tells us in verse 3, these believers at Thessalonica were disciples of Christ. They are, as John says, abiding in Christ. Again, they're less than a year old. No leadership. Two months of teaching with Paul. Timothy went back and taught them also for a while. On this verse, G.K. Beale writes this. We do not live in an age radically different theologically from the Thessalonians. Totally disagree with that. 
Okay, just to start out. <laughs> we also live in the end times. Well, see, Beal is a little confused there about the end times. And thus need to have faith, love, and hope in order to persevere through a tribulation that subtly attempts to destroy us spiritually. Now, this guy is a great theologian, but I have to strongly disagree with him. The believers in Thessalonica lived in what the Bible calls this age. All right? All believers since A.D. 70 live in what the Scripture call the age to come. So we are in a different age than them. The last days ended when the age to come arrived. We are not living in hope of the parousia. We're living in light of it as a past event. All right? But, you know, he would, and Beale says that the end times began at, with Christ, and I agree with that, but the end times have lasted 2,000 years. So I'd have to ask, what are they the end times of? Because if the end times are 2,000 years, that would mean the rest of the time had to be a lot longer than 2,000. You can't have end times be way longer than the whole existence. And if, if it's talking about here, about Israel and the Old Covenant, that was in existence for about 1,600 years. So you got 2,000 years being the end time of something that only was existent for... Now, none of that makes sense, people. But let's move on. Let's go to verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, Paul calls them brothers. We throw this term around a lot, but we, what you need to understand is this was an affectionate term which highlighted their new spiritual relationship as members of the family of God. Brothers was Paul's favorite designation for the Thessalonians. He used it 15 times in this epistle and 7 times in 2 Thessalonians. It emphasizes the quality of Christians in the family of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. What he's saying here is we're family. We are connected by blood, the blood of the Lord Yeshua. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an incredible thing that he's telling them. And then Paul says that they are loved by God. Literally, this would be divinely loved ones. Loved is a perfect passive participle of the verb agapao, to love. The perfect focuses on the abiding results the fixed condition of being the grace recipients and the passive voice of God's love, the agent of love is God. Now the adjective, agapetas, is usually used of the Father's love for Yeshua. Here, it's used for all believers. The Father loves Yeshua the Son, and we are in Christ and loved like Christ is loved. Now, here's what I want you to grab here. Please understand this. Paul traces divine election to the sovereign, eternal love of God. All right, if you want to understand election, you want to understand the chosen, it goes back to the love of God. And we'll see this hopefully over and over this morning. Now, he says, He has chosen you. The Greek here, eklege, which means selection, Election, choosing. 
Now, with this word, we were confronted with the doctrine of election. A doctrine that everybody loves. Right? <laughs> oh, It's a doctrine that has different effects on various people. Okay? It makes some people angry. Arminians don't like this at all. It confuses many people because they're just like, I don't understand. How could God choose? And it even frightens some other people. Well, let's, so let's look at what the Scriptures have to say and see if we can draw out what they say about this difficult topic. Differing views on the doctrine of election have created a huge divide in the Christian church. Okay, There's been plenty of people who have left this church because they didn't like what I taught on election. All right, they just people don't they can't handle that, okay? Bottom line is, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? And I believe the Bible clearly overwhelmingly teaches the doctrine of election whether you like it or not. Okay, now at one point, I hated this doctrine. I mean, I used to get mad when someone would talk to me about that. That's just wrong. And then I came to believe the very thing I hated. <laughs> because God opened my eyes, okay? The doctrine of election is a subject that is a frequent theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel, and mankind had just got to the point where God said, I am done with you people. Okay, you just won't follow me, you won't listen to me. So God took mankind as a whole, all of them, and gave them over to the other gods and said, you serve them, you worship them, I'm done with you people. And God left them. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, God chose Abraham out of a city of idolaters. His father was an idolater. And God promised to work through Abraham and bring his salvation to the nations. The nations he had just turned away. Now listen, he didn't choose Abram's entire city. He didn't choose Abram's family. He chose Abram. I don't know any, I've never heard anybody get mad about that. Never heard anybody argue about that. He didn't choose anybody else in Asia, Africa, Europe. He chose Abram. And then he refused to choose Abram's son, Ishmael, and he chose Isaac. Then he rejected Isaac's son, Esau, and he chose Jacob. Again, not too many people have problems with this. People have problems with this verse, Romans 9, 13. People, there's no textual problems with this, okay? This verse is there. There's no textual critics who say, oh, I don't think this verse belongs in the Bible. But look what it says. As it's written, Jacob I loved. And everybody's like, well, cool, that's cool. Of course, that makes sense, right? But then Esau I hated. What? No, that can't be right. But God chose Jacob. And you know, want to know why he chose Jacob? He tells us right there. Because I loved him. God chooses what he loves. Now, centuries later, Moses said to Jacob's descendants, and because he loved your fathers, again, get the idea, love comes first, and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. 
He then repeats this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set His love on you. Okay? And He chose you. That's why He chose them, because He loved them. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand. Now, to drive the point home, he repeated it again in Deuteronomy 10.15. Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring. People, Yahweh chooses who he loves. Now listen please carefully. And he doesn't love everybody. Because if he loved everybody, he would choose everybody. Okay? And he doesn't choose everybody. We'll see that here. And because he doesn't love everybody, Christ didn't die for everybody. Now, Galatians 2.20 is probably a very familiar verse, one that Christians memorize and they quote often. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the truth found at the end of the verse that maybe is not so familiar. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, I want you to pay particular care to the end of this here where he says, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself. Paul says that Christ loved him and died for him. This is a critical element in the Gospel. Notice that Paul ties Yeshua's love for him to his death for him. Christ died for those he loved. So the question we need to answer is, who does Christ love? And for whom did he die? Now the majority of believers, test me on this, okay? Go ask some other believers. The majority of believers today would say that God loves everybody. Christ died for everybody. Do you agree with that? Most Christians would say that? Of course, that's why they go around telling everybody God loves them. I'm like, how do you know? How do you know God loves them? It's a commonly held belief, but is it biblical? See, I understand the Bible to teach that God does not love everybody. It's not a popular belief. I know that when I say that, people get upset. But it's clearly what the Word teaches, and that should be all we really care about. Again, Esau I hated, he says. Would you agree with me that God didn't love Esau? I think that's kind of clear, right? But let me ask you this. Now, how will you argue? Will you say that he loves everybody but Esau? Was Esau the only person that God didn't love? The belief in our day is that God loves everybody. That is a modern belief. It really is. If you would search the writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, you will search in vain for any such concept from them. The fact is, the love of God is a truth for saints only. Not once in the four Gospels do we read the Lord 
telling people, telling sinners that God loves them. It's not there. Okay? Here's what's interesting to me. The book of Acts, which records the evangelistic labors and the message of the apostles, in that Acts, God's love is never referred to at all. How did these guys preach the gospel without being able to say, smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? How could they preach the gospel without saying, it's not there. But when you come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, then you have a full presentation of the love of God because he's talking to his people. Look at Hebrews 12, 6. For Yahweh disciplines the one he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives. So God's love is restricted to the members of his own family. If he loves all men, then the distinction and limitation here in this verse is meaningless. God only chastens who he loves. He doesn't go chastening other people's children. He chastens his own. That's a reference to believers, to the elect. Now people right away say, what about John 3.16? That teaches that God loves everybody. For God so loved the world. See, I told you. That's it, right? We're done. That He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And many people will run to this and say, doesn't this prove that God loves everybody? No, it doesn't. Remember Esau? Do you remember him? you got to admit that the Bible says that he hated Esau, Okay? Let's put it in the form of a syllogism. Let's pretend we have we still use logic today. Major premise, God hated Esau. Everybody clear on that? You can't argue with that, right? Bible says that. Major major minor premise would be Esau's part of the world. Everybody still with me? What's the conclusion? God doesn't love everybody in the world. Because Esau's part of the world, and he didn't love him, so he must not love everybody in the world. The word world here is not used to mean every single person that ever lived. The word world often has a relative rather than an absolute meaning. I can give you many examples, but for time's sake, I'm going to give you one in Acts 19.27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She, Artemis, whom all Asia and the world worships. So let me ask you, did everyone in Asia and the world worship Artemis? No, because there's many believers at the time, and they weren't worshiping her, they were worshiping the Lord. In John 3, Yeshua is speaking to Nicodemus, who is a Jew, and the Jews believed that God loved only them. We just read passages from Deuteronomy. God loved them. They knew that, but they believed that was an exclusive love. It's just ours. He doesn't love anybody else. What John 3.16 is saying is that God's love is now international in its scope. He loves Gentiles as well as Jews. That's so important that we get that. The world to them, because the Jewish world was only Israel. He's saying, no, he loves you guys, but he loves Gentiles too. He loves the world. Not every single person in it. 
Look at Ephesians here, 1, 4, and 5. Even as He chose us, speaking of the believers at Ephesus, in Him before the foundation of the world. I've heard people say, you know why God chose us before the foundation of the world? Because once we were born, He never would have chose us. <laughs> no, that's not true because He knew the beginning from the end. But He chose us before the world ever came into existence. Because He knew we'd be here. It's all planned out. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Yeshua the Christ according to the purpose of His will. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign in the exercise of His love. So, if what we said so far is true, if God doesn't love everybody but only His elect, then we should understand that Christ did not die for everyone, but only for those He loved. Now, Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that Christ died for Him because He loved Him. This is also a truth taught throughout the Scriptures. The Tanakh represents the Father as promising the Son a certain reward for His suffering on behalf of sinners. See, according to the way Arminians look at the Bible, Christ died for everybody, and so you pick and choose whether you want Him or not. In their scheme, it could be that everybody rejects Christ, because it's up to them, right? Their free will. Everybody could reject Christ, therefore Christ died for nothing. But see, in the Calvinistic scheme, Christ died for His elect. The elect are literally a love gift that the Father gives to the Son for His work at Calvary. It's an incredible story, people. Isaiah 53, 10. For it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. That was God's will, to crush His Son. He has put Him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This is a reference to the elect of God. He will see those offspring. That's what he's dying for a purpose. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I want you to understand, God is going to be satisfied with what happens here. Not frustrated. Because he's going to bring in the offspring with this sacrifice. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Look at Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, not Jesus, Yeshua. Okay, For He will save His people from their sins. Now there's two things in this verse that we need to understand. First, Yeshua didn't come to save all men. He came to save His people. Now I know there's people out there that argue His people were only Jews. That's false from the get-go. God loved the nations. God, is all, as soon as He rejected the nations, He made a plan to call back the nations. I think His people here are the elect of God. Those are the ones He's chosen from the foundation of the world. The Reformers called this limited atonement. That doesn't mean that Christ's death was limited in power, but was limited in scope and purpose. In other words, He didn't die for all humanity. He died for His people. Next, it says, He will save His people. The angel didn't say, He will offer salvation to everybody. Offering salvation implies you could accept it, you could reject it. 
This verse plainly states, He will save, emphasizing a complete work for His people only, accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. So Yeshua taught that He was not going to die for all humanity. Look at Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Do you think he could have said for all here if he wanted? He got that ability, right? He could have, you know, no, but he says he died for many. We see the same thing in Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood, Christ says, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yeshua said he came to give his life as a ransom and pour out his blood for many, not for all. John 10, 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, now get this. He's laying down his life life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Is every human being a sheep? Or do the sheep only refer to the elect of God? I think the sheep are God's elect. Look at Matthew 25, 32-34. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So you got sheep, you got goats. He will place the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Alright, you got a separation going on here. Now watch. Then the king will say to those on the right, that's the sheep, right? Come. You who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 1. Those who are sheep inherit the kingdom. What happens to the goats? They go away to everlasting destruction. As we saw in John 15, Yeshua said He lays down His life for the sheep, not for the goats. Christ died only for his sheep, and everybody's not a sheep. We have sheep, we have goats. Look at John 6.65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Now, there's three things I want to point out here. The first one is the phrase, no one. It's a universal negative. That's to say that the phrase, no one, includes both classes of people, not Jews, not Gentiles, no one can come to me. Right? And he says, can come to me. Now this has to do with the ability of man. We're going to see in a minute here that this phrase, come to me, can also be translated, believe in me. So let's say that no one can believe in me. Not Jew, not Gentile. They don't have the ability. And lastly, he says, unless. So there's a necessary condition. Yeshua said that the necessary condition for someone coming to Him was God giving them to Him. What does God give them? God gives them ability. Simply put, God gives man the ability to come to Christ. Man on his own does not have that ability. That's where the church messes up today. They think everybody has the ability to come to Christ. You just got to make the right decision. You could call it decisional regeneration. You decide and you get life. Look at John 10, 23-29. Yeshua was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? He wasn't keeping them in suspense at all, okay? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he's been doing that. Watch. Yeshua answered them. I told you. And you don't believe. I already did tell you. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about. They saw him raising the dead, healing the blind, giving sight to the blind, feeding thousands of people with a couple of fish. They saw all this and they're like, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us. He goes, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now watch what he says. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, he says, they hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is pretty cool, people. It starts in eternity past. God chooses us. That choice is forever and ever, never altered. No one will ever remove us from the hand of God. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here again, those Jews, he's telling them, And they're all confused. Why don't you just tell us? Why don't you make it plain? Tell us if you're the Christ. He goes, hey, I've been telling you. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Why? They weren't his sheep. Notice that Yeshua didn't say they were not his because they didn't believe. He said the proof that you're not his was their unbelief. Simply put, if they believed... They would already been his. But since they don't believe, they were not. Christ's sheep are identified by their faith. That's how you identify the sheep from the goats. All right. Now, Christ tells these Jews that they didn't believe because you're not my sheep. These verses point clearly to the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. Christ died not merely to make possible the salvation of all mankind, but to make certain the salvation of the elect. He died for a people. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not for the goats, but for the sheep. John 10, 3 and 4. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He calls his own sheep, people. His own sheep. John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me, will come to me. So who comes to Christ? Everybody? No, it's the ones the Father gives him. Remember we talked about the Father giving the Son a love gift. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. You see, see there, anybody can come. That's true. But see, man doesn't have the ability to come. So unless God does something to man, he'll never want to come. Now according to this verse, who is it that comes to Christ? It's all the Father gives him. God's chosen will come. Look at John 6, 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Again, that idea of these people have been given to Him. But raise it up on the last day. Who is it that receives resurrection life? It's all that the Father has given to Christ. That's what the text says. God the Father has given the elect to Christ as 
a love gift. John 6, 44. All right. Let me tell you, people. If you want to defend the doctrine of election, just learn this verse, memorize this verse. To me, this verse is what I call ungetoverable. Okay? And if you're out there listening and you're an Arminian, please, please tell me how you would exegete this verse. Tell me what this verse means because there's just no way you can tear this verse apart. You can look at this verse and put it in context and say, this is proving the doctrine of Arminianism, that I can choose Christ whenever I want to. Notice the words, come to me. All right. Remember I said earlier, these words are synonymous uh, with believe in me. Look, let's back up to verse 35 and I'll show you. Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here we see that coming to Yeshua, believing in Yeshua, they're synonymous concepts. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ, same believing in Christ. Believing in Christ is the same as coming to Christ. This is very important to understand in this text. All right? Now, so when he says, no one can come to me, he's saying, no one can believe in me. Okay, we got that? Now, some have tried to interpret the word draw here as call or invite. We'll look at that a little more closely in a minute, but that's just your own imagination and wishful thinking, maybe, okay? Some people go so far as to say that God calls or invites everybody equally at all times. They would say that the Father draws everybody and everybody can choose or refuse. So again, it's back to them, all right? They just make your decision. The problem with that view is that it distorts the text. If this is all that Yeshua is trying to say, his words make no sense in the context of this discussion of which he spoke it. You read John 6, and they're saying, how how come we're not believing? How come we're not getting this? How come we don't understand what you're saying? You can't. You're not the elect. Its words only make sense if the implication is that the objectors may not have been drawn. That's why they're not getting it. Now, there are three things I want to point out here. The first is the phrase, no one. Again, it's a universal negative. No one, Jew or Gentile. They can't come. Second, can come to me. Again, this is believe in me. This has to do with ability, people. Yeshua is saying no one, either Jew or Gentile, has the ability to believe in me. We already saw this in verse 65. There it said, no one can come unless it's been granted. Here he says again, no one can come. And lastly, the word unless. It's a necessary condition. Yeshua said that the necessary condition of someone coming to him was God's giving it to them. What does God give them? He gives them life. Simply put, God gives man life, which is then the ability to come to Christ Man on his own does not have that ability. Now, the Greek word translated here, draws, is the Greek halkuo. Halkuo is used eight times in the New Testament. So here, I'm not going to go through them. We've, done, we've dealt with halkuo many times. I just want to say that there's eight of them. I'm asking you to look them up. That's easy to do, people. All you got to do, go to any kind of Bible program, click on the word draws here, find a Greek word, trace the Greek word to the New Testament, read every passage it's used in, and you'll have a V8, okay? It's like, well, that makes sense. Or you'll make something up, one or the other, okay? Because here's what hell kuo means. 
Halkua doesn't mean woo, whatever that means. I never did understand that. Woo. God's got to woo you. I'm like, woo me? That sounds, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds ridiculous. But people say, well, draws means calls. Draws means invites. According to who? You don't just read the Bible and make up. I think that, I think I'll make this say this. No. Halkua means to drag by irresistible superiority. It's used of Peter who halkuoed his sword. Now, did Peter say, sword, I would like to invite you to come into my hand. I'm wooing you, sword, come out. No, he grabbed the hold of the sword and he pulled it out with irresistible superiority. He drew the sword. It's used of people dragging the disciples into the court. Did they say, guys, we want to take you to court. Would you follow us? No, they grabbed them and dragged them to draw by irresistible superiority. Again, eight times, look them up, and you'll see what it means. That's so important. So Yeshua is saying here that nobody, Jew, Gentile, nobody comes unless the Father drags them. Okay, that's what it says. Now listen, this is what Calvinists call irresistible grace or sovereign grace. And it doesn't mean that God drags people who don't want to come. People read this and they're like, God's dragged, I don't want to be saved. And you know, they're fighting the whole way and God drags them into the kingdom. That's crazy. Okay. And I, I know people who have believed that. They've told me that's the definition of a Calvinist. And I'd say, let me set you down and straighten you out on what this means. Okay. God makes a person willing by his grace. In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, and that life includes a desire for Him. And if God gives you a desire to Christ, you're going to act according to that desire and choose Christ. He's not dragging you. He's changing your heart. He's taking out a stony heart. He's giving you a heart of flesh. And with that heart of flesh, you choose Christ. But it's an irresistible draw. You cannot say no to God. Okay? Get that, people. On any level. You can't say no to God. Peter was just messed up. Peter said, not so, Lord. You can't do that, okay? If he's the Lord, then you don't say not so. You just say, yes, Lord. All right? That's how it works with humans and God. But God gives people the desire. Again, this verse is ungetoverable. Just taking the words there at face value, dealing with the the Greek, and then going into the context of what he's arguing here, and again, we saw this in verse 65, is almost identical, but it says granted instead of draws. No one, not Jew, not Greek, nobody can come to me. No one can believe in me. Just take it there. No one believes in him. Unless, oh, there's an exception. What's the exception? Unless you will to. No, that's not what it says. Unless he draws you. And then if he draws you, He's going to raise you up at the last day because you're going to be his. All right. All right. Awesome verse. One more thought on this verse, though, before we go. All right. What does this verse say about universalism? You know what universalism is? Universalism is a doctrine that God saves everybody. Everybody's going to be saved. They don't know they're saved, but they're all saved. And so guess what? That does to the gospel. Who needs a gospel? Everybody's saved. You, they don't even, they don't know you. You just have to, our job, they say, is to go out and tell people you're saved. 
They don't know it. You got to tell them. But everybody say. So, universalists, tell me, what do you do with this verse? Okay? I think the universe, here's how I translate this verse for universalism. Okay? Everyone can come to me. Because the Father who sent me draws everybody. And everybody gets raised up at the last day. Mm, that's just a little problematic with the text. I mean, th- that would have to be how they interpret it, right? But I got a problem with that, okay? No, they can't. Bottom line here, people, universalism is, universalism is wrong, okay? It denies the gospel. Universalism starts with the wrong presupposition, and that's God loves everybody. If, in fact, God loved everybody, universalism would be correct. Because if God loved everybody, He would choose everybody, He would save everybody, because whom He loves, He chooses. So that you start with the wrong premise. God loves everyone. No, that's not true. The idea of God choosing certain people, again, is taught throughout the Scripture. Look at me at this story in John 5. There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals. Please get this, okay? There's a lot of sick people there, okay? Invalids. There's a multitude of invalids. You got blind people, you got lame people, you got paralyzed people. Okay, then here in contrast, you got a multitude, then you got one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Yeshua saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Who's he, who did he say that to? The one man, not the multitude, the one man. The sick man answered, making it clear, sir, I have no one to come and put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. They had this thing that angels stir the water. If you're the first one in, you get healed. All right, he couldn't get down there. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Only one person gets it, I guess. Yeshua said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. There was a multitude of sick folks. Why did Christ only heal one? Did he only have enough power to take? I can only help one of you. Which one will it be? He didn't even do a lottery. He just, you know, who wants it? He just picked out a man. I choose you. He could have healed anybody. He chose not to. Listen, God is sovereign in the dispensing of His mercy and grace. Romans 9, I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. Again, a prerogative of deity. Does it bother you that God chooses certain people to give grace and mercy to and not others? Well, if the doctrine of election does bother you, you're not alone. The Lord had that same problem in Luke 11. Look at Luke 11, 4, 25-30. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows. Again, we got many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. No rain. And a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So there's a lot of widows. God sends Elijah to one of them. And there were 
many lepers in Israel. Okay, a whole bunch of them. In the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, a lot of lepers, one gets cleansed. A lot of widows, one gets taken care of. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Who does God think He is? And they rose up and they drove Him out of the town. They brought Him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw Him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, (laughs) He just walks right through and see y'all fellas. And they're like, where did He go? He went away. Okay, here out of all the widows and all the leopards, God chose two to bless. You want to know what really Tick these people off about these two. What? They were Gentiles. What? We're the chosen people. God's choosing Gentiles. This made them so angry. People, God is sovereign over all, and this includes giving His love and eternal life to whoever He chooses to give it to. This made the Jews very angry, though. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to who He will. Oh, He makes a choice. Our shepherd's love is a sovereign love. Now, people, the church today is being flooded with a new gospel. It's a humanistic gospel. The gospel is always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment. It's a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and grace. The center of reference in the gospel is God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. You choose. You decide. You initiate salvation. The chief aim of the gospel is to teach men to worship God. But the concern of the new gospel seems limited to making people feel better. Making people happy. Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem. It just makes it possible. And if Christ is a Savior who does less than save, doesn't really save you, He could if you do your part. God's love is a weak affection that cannot keep anyone from wrath without their own help. And a faith as the human help which God needs to complete His purpose. This is not the Gospel, people. The Gospel is this. God saves sinners. Bottom line. God does it. He saves from beginning to end, does everything that's needed, sinners. That's it. Now, in John 17, we see the great shepherd. And and John 17 is the high priestly prayer. The Lord is praying to his Father. And we see the shepherd gives eternal life to those that the Father had given him. John 17, 1 and 2. When Yeshua had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given Him. Again, there's a a specific people that He gives eternal life to. He gives it to the ones the Father had given Him, His elect, His people. John 17, 24, Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me, these people he gave them, select group, may be with me where I am. I want my people with me. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Those given to Yeshua by God the Father are children of promise. God is selective in salvation. Now to teach that Christ loves and died for all of humanity is to teach against the plain words of Scripture. The Bible teaches that the work of Christ accomplished in His work, He accomplished the full salvation for His people and for His people alone. So our message must be Christ died for His people. That's who He died for. And that may change the way that you present the gospel because, again, we start out in this wrong. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How about starting out with you are under the wrath of God, a sinner separated from God, about to face His wrath. That's where you start, not with the love of God. Okay, you start with the wrath of God. All right, we're done with the chosen. We're moving on. We'll be back, though. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. All right, now, some have claimed that the words here, in power and with full conviction, refer to the Thessalonians, the recipients of the letter. In other words, these are effects they saw in their life. But that doesn't fit. Because he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be. This verse is talking about Paul and the missionaries. Timothy and Silas. This is what we, okay, this is them. We had the, we saw the power. We had full conviction. We knew this. He's not talking about the recipients. We'll get to the recipients next week. Now in verse 4, Paul said, we know God has chosen you. How did he know? He said, we know because our gospel came not to you in word only. That's how we know. We know you're elect because when we preach the gospel, there was power there. There was transformation there. All right? The gospel Paul preached was not just words. Now, understand there were words. Of course there was words. He had to use words. But it wasn't just words. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.4, I think Paul explains the sense of 1 Thessalonians 1.5. uses the same vocabulary. He says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he says, But also in the power of the Holy Spirit. But here is Allah. It's a strong conjunction of contrast. This power is the inherent power of the gospel as the word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, it's living and active. What makes it that way? The Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit makes it that way. It, it brings people to life so these words are like, wow, that means something. When Paul preached the gospel, he depended on the Holy Spirit to authenticate and empower his words because the natural man is incapable of grasping spiritual truth. All right? This is a verse you need to understand also. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person. That is the person without the Spirit of God. He's a natural person. He's just a man, okay? Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able 
to understand him. You get that? The natural person can't understand. You're preaching the gospel to people and you're wondering, why don't you get this? How come you're not excited about it? I've told you before, one of the biggest shocks of my life was, you know, I became a Christian. Someone gave me a gospel track, Big Daddy. I remember stopping at work, opening Big Daddy and reading it, and I felt conviction. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, what is going on here? What is happening to me? You know, I mean, God was moving. My, I didn't understand it, you know. And I went to a friend who gave me the track. I said, ah, uh, what do I do? What must I do to be saved, basically? He said, you just need to ask God to save you. And so I went home and I did that, and I believed he did it. And so I went back to the guy and I said, where'd you get those tracks? And he told me the bookstore over there. So I went to the bookstore and I spent a ton of money and I bought all kinds of these things. Every Friday night we had a kager where all of me and my buddies and girls would all get together on Friday night with different houses. This week was at my house. So I got the kager, got my tracks, everybody's drinking, everybody's partying. And I'm going around to every person handing out tracks and they're stopping and they're reading them. And I'm, I'm just, I'm pumped. I am so excited. And then they would throw it down on the ground and one put it out. And I'm like, what are you thinking? Uh, I was just, I was heartbroken. I'm like, wait a minute. Do you understand what you just read? No, they didn't. Because the natural man doesn't get it. I got it because God gave me life. Unless God gives them life, they don't get it. My grandmother said that was the funniest thing she ever saw. You walking around with a beer in one hand and tracks in the other, just handed out to everybody preaching the gospel. And I'm like... That was a cool time. But let me tell you, uh, that night, I was a disappointed person. I really was. Because I thought, hey, all my friends are going to get saved. This is going to be awesome. You know? From then on, I was just the Jesus freak. Okay? (laughs) But this verse right here, this is why that Yeshua said, no one can come to me. That's why he said that. Because a natural person doesn't have the other ability to do that. They just can't do it. He says, and full of conviction. Again, this points to the faith and confidence of the missionaries. When they're preaching the gospel, they have full confidence. Not like I had. I I mean, I thought something was going to happen, but it didn't. But they know these people are turning to Christ. Because they preached the gospel. It came with a deep conviction. They were convinced of the truth of this message, and they're sharing it. They knew that God was speaking through them. They knew that God had put him there for a reason. And he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sakes. Now, what he's doing here, he's appealing to the reader's firsthand knowledge of their missionary team. They'd been with them a couple months. And Paul says, his, him and his companions, they were preaching a spirit-empowered message so that they had also lived lives that were fully consistent with the message. In other words, you know our life. This is our message. Our life backs it up. Now, in chapter 2, Paul contrasts the way he and his mission team actually acted among the Thessalonians compared to those who were, you know, false teachers. We'll see that in chapter 2. But here's what I want you to grasp here as we close. It was not only the message of the gospel that the Holy Spirit empowered and authenticated. It was the lifestyle of the messengers. Believers... If we're not careful to live Christ-like lives, our lives are going to speak so loudly against the gospel that no one's going to care what we have to say. Because an unholy life is just contrary to the Word of God. St. Francis of Assisi put it this way, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words.
You know what he's saying? He means your life should demonstrate holiness. Your life should be a life of integrity. Your life should be a life of love and compassion. And when people look at you, they say, why are you this way? And then you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Preach Christ. But the message of the gospel, if it doesn't come from a holy life, it's hypocrisy to people. Richard Baxter said this, an unholy pastor is like a stained glass window. It's just a religious figure that keeps the light out. Believers, don't let your life block the light of the gospel. I know so many ungodly preachers. But it's not just preachers, it's all of us, okay? We are called to live a holy life. I think preachers are called to a higher calling because Paul tells them to be an example to the flock. Kathy was reading to me, I think it was just yesterday, of this mega church pastor who, you know, was messing around with the secretary. I'm like, boy, that's such a familiar tune. I've seen it, heard it so many times. I know so many friends of mine, pastors, that are out of the ministry because, you know, sexual immorality. Preaching against it while living it. An unholy pastor, an unholy person is a stained glass window. We just we keep the light out. That's not our calling, people. Our calling is to live out the gospel day in and day out so we have a, a platform to preach the truth and people know they're living what they're preaching. They're, they're backing up what they're saying by the life they live. That means the things that come out of our mouth, the way we treat people, the way we walk through this earth. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. Paul and his missionaries could say to these people, you know how we conducted ourselves. You know our message is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us, just the privilege we have to be together as your family and look at your word, Lord, to talk about it, to discuss it, to try to dig in and see what it's saying. God, teach us, Lord. May we be a people that lives the gospel of Christ. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Mm. Thanks, Zoe. I'd have a hard time checking that from back there. Someone says, thank you so much for this teaching. I was raised with Arminian doctrine. So was I. Every time I hear you teach on the elect or chosen, I'm challenged. The teaching resonates my spirit. My paradigm has been shifting. It has been a bit painful, but today I think the shift has finally been fully realized. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for your faithful study and preaching of the Word of God. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate you joining with us. Believe me, I've been there. I know the pain of paradigm shifts, you know, over and over and, and over, okay? And I remember this paradigm very, very well. Um, very painful week when I moved out of Arminianism into the truth of Calvinism. Anybody else? Questions, comments? Your admonition to Sharon applies to your own message, too. It's pretty tough. <laughs> okay, we done? You online? Done, that's it? We good?
We're good to go? I know, I know that there's a lot of people who are Arminian who watch, and they always comment they don't like when I talk about that. But you could either get used to it or go somewhere else, because when it comes up, even sometimes I'll make it come up, okay? Because <laughs> I just think it's the truth of what the Bible has to say. But again, I mean, if you, if you disagree with that, I challenge you to give me an exegesis of John 6.44. In context, what is the Lord saying there? Uh, someone asked a good question here. What about the men- mentally disabled and election? God will choose who will choose. He doesn't need the mind of man. You know, he can choose a handicap, mentally hand. He can do whatever he wants to do. But I think if you're one of God's elect, you're going. And if you're not, you're not. I just think it's simple as that. And God, again, bottom line, you know, he can choose mentally handicapped people. You don't have to be smart. I'm proof of that, right? You don't have to be intelligent. You just have to, you know, follow the call of God. He's going to call you. You're going to go. Well, that's a good question, Sharon. I get that. Okay, say, all right, we're saying that you are saved when you believe the gospel. What about someone who doesn't have that ability? Okay, and normally, that's the normal, that's the average. I don't think that God can't say, I choose you to be mine. You don't have the capacity, but I'm choosing you. The only reason we do believe is because he gives us life. He gives us the capacity. So if someone didn't have that capacity, although, you know, even most handicapped people make choices, you know, and believe certain things. God has that ability. Again, he chooses based on his own will in eternity past. So I just believe God, you know, he's sovereign in what he does. Okay. Someone says amen to the fact that we have a savior and eternal life, not a possible savior and possible eternal life. People, this has to be huge if we understand it because I'm glad God didn't leave it up to me to choose him that wouldn't have worked out too well (laughs) from one Yeshua freak to another freak after 42 years of flying as a flight attendant I still friends and co-workers receiving Christ and seeking counsel amen they tell me I was a freak but they're so glad I was one. <laughs> Amen. You know, you know what a Jesus freak is? Someone who loves Yeshua more than you. That's what a Jesus freak is. That's why people, you know, they're blowing the standards, you know, because the average Christian is so cold and lukewarm, I guess you could say, that when you get someone who's excited for God, everyone thinks they got a fever, you know. That's not how it should be, people. We should, when you understand the gospel, there should be an excitement about it. What about unbelievers who are kind, unselfish, generous, etc.? They're nice people. There's some of them. There is some of those. There's some non-believers that if you go by MacArthur's view and you look at their life, they look way more like a Christian than some Christians. But that's not, it's not about what you do or how nice or how kind you are. There's some evil Christians. There's some mean Christians. 
And there's some nice, unsaved people. That's not what it's about. Okay? And being a nice guy, being kind, not going to get you into heaven. It's the blood of Christ that will get you into heaven, and that only happens if you're the elect of God. All right? Yeah, Christians shouldn't be mean. They should be. Again, we talked about that. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks because Paul talks about, you know, the Thessalonians and, like, their example was just amazing. Okay? All right. So, going back to those who don't, those who can't believe or those who can't, don't have the mental capacity, are you saying God can make them, give them the mental capacity or God can just... Okay. The, yes. I, okay. This. I'm. I'm not. I don't have a scripture here. Okay. So I'm giving you my opinion. All right. You understand how much that's worth. Okay. But I'm saying that God is sovereign, and if He chooses someone, He can either give them the capacity to believe, or He can choose them despite that, because He's God. And He said, "This person doesn't have that ability. I'm choosing them anyway, because I love them." It would contradict, it would, no, it would contradict what is normal because this is, the people have to believe the gospel, but if they don't have it, are we gonna, you know, okay, if we go that route, and maybe that's true, okay, but if we go that route, then any ba- aborted baby, any child that dies in infancy, we have to say, they're gone, they're perished, they can't come to Christ, they can't be part of the elect, they'll never be part of the family of God. I just, I don't believe that. I think that you know God in His wisdom chooses some to be His who cannot believe. Nobody can believe unless He gives them. But this person can't believe anyway. So that, and again, I can't back that up. Hey, wouldn't that, wouldn't that contradict? I mean, wouldn't that say that God has the ability to forgive sin? Well, He does have the ability to forgive sin. And here's the thing. If, if Christ died for this person, if they're elect, then Christ died for them. And that's what redeems them. Okay? Christ, now the average, the normal person, yes, when you, but listen, I just believe that God makes exceptions. I can't prove that. That's my position. I just can't believe that every aborted baby is lost for eternity. Now people, now, people would argue with me about And I know that. Again, this is my opinion. You don't have to... You know, I'm just... That's, that's strictly what it is. I think God makes exceptions to a lot of rules. Because He's God. And again, you're dealing with God, okay? God can do what He needs to do. And I just think that the thing that I'm overriding everything is if you're elect, you're elect. Bottom line. How do we know? We don't. Real question is: We do assent, and we don't live righteous. So why does God choose us? I mean, where's where's their example there? Yeah, somebody complained about Romans nine. I can't understand how God could hate Esau, and the preacher responded the thing that blows my mind: I can't understand how He loved Jacob. That's the more difficult question. I understand how He hated Esau. He should hate all of us. But he chose, to, he chose to have a people. And normally those people have to come through faith. But if a person can't believe, if they're too young, if they're mentally incapacitated, can God bring them? I think he can if he wants to. Again, opinion.